Okay. Thank you, Pastor. The uh, titles there, Pastor Emeritus and uh, Chancellor of Heartland, the thing I like about those titles is they don't mean a thing. And uh, so they're honorary, and I'm still happy, of course, to be associated with Southwest Baptist Church that I pastored for 20 years and then was uh, 19 years as president of Heartland. Heartland came to Oklahoma City. Uh, we are beginning our 25th year this year. And so we've got uh, graduates all over the country. Glad to see uh, Brother Jonathan, Miss Edith here. And uh, we meet them everywhere. And uh, my wife and I are all over the place. And I think I counted the last time I did take a count. We had 22 men that were pastoring in the state of Washington. And we've got a, a good handful that are pastoring in the state of New York. And we've got church planters, missionaries all over the place. And uh, constantly I'm meeting young men and women out of Heartland that are in churches that aren't never felt a call to preach or call to full-time ministry, but they are using their what they gained at Heartland to serve the Lord in the churches they're in. So we get to see them all over the place. So I want to thank the Lord that your young people got to come up to the youth conference uh, this past, uh, what was it, Tuesday night, Wednesday and Thursday. And that was quite a meeting. I got to go to all the night meetings. It was just really really a powerful uh, three-day event there, just truly amazing. And so we're very, very thankful for that. And uh, there are some people that think that I think Heartland is the only Bible college. I, I do not think that. Uh, I don't. Because there is, um, um, let me see. Boy, my mind just goes blank right here, but I know there are other good Bible colleges out there. But you don't blame me for highly recommending Heartland now, do you? I mean, it's right here closely uh, convenient for this area, and we have students. We had a crisis one year at Heartland when we had more students from Texas than we did Oklahoma. Yeah, so uh, I was still president. We kicked out about four students and got it back to where Oklahoma, I'm just kidding. But anyway, we've had a wonderful, wonderful experience there, and thank God for how he's used it, and thank you for your friendship. I want you to open your Bibles tonight to the Gospel of John and chapter number four. As I mentioned this morning, I'm too insecure to ask how many of you actually read uh, the assignment this afternoon, so I'm just going to leave it alone at that. And... Uh, Trust that maybe some of you did, and if you did not, then we're going to go down to about verse number 19 tonight, and then we're going to continue uh, through this account of Jesus, I call it Jesus, at work at the well. What an account, what a wonderful, wonderful story it is. And like I mentioned this morning, if you think it's going to be pretty much the same thing every night, it's not because this account affords us quite a, a, a broad array of subject and application matter here. So I think it can, be a, it can be a real help. If I didn't think so, I certainly wouldn't be having us go this way uh, this week. Now, if you'd stand with me, we're going to read, uh, beginning in verse number 4, where it actually accounts to us where Jesus has been, what he's doing. Uh, but if you found John 4, would you do this? Would you find also, uh, for future reference, would you just find Jeremiah 2? And there's one verse I want to read there in Jeremiah chapter 2. And uh, then you can close your Bible there and we'll just make reference to it later on. Uh, if you're in Jeremiah 2, look in verse number 13. 
Jeremiah 2.13, where God says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. So God referred to himself as the fountain of living water. I also love to preach out of this passage, and I'm trying to hold myself uh, from going off on that right now. But just, uh, just keep that in your mind, that God referred to himself as the fountain of living waters. This is a metaphor that God used in relation to himself. He is the fountain of living waters. And then he talks about those sources of water that are from man-made sources as well. All right, now we'll come back to that in our preaching a little bit later on. So let's go to chapter 4 now in the Gospel of John. And uh, we're going to begin our reading in verse number 4. And he must needs go through Samaria. Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour, which would be the noon hour. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. For, parentheses, the disciples are gone away into the city to buy meat. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest me or drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And I might just add here, neither would have a man talk to a woman in this particular setting. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou would have asked of me, of him, and he would have given thee living water. The woman said to him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob? We could answer that, couldn't we? Okay, way to go. You're really on the ball here. Now, come on. We could answer that real easy. But anyway, art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle? Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Jesus saith to her, Go call thy husband. And come hither. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband, for thou hast had five husbands. And he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. In that thou uh, sayest thou truly. 
the woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. And there's no way I'd stop there if we weren't going to pick up here tomorrow night and go on, but we're going to stop right there. Father, we do come before you tonight and ask, Lord, your blessings upon this time together in the Word. And I, I know that for many, maybe certainly probably not for all, but for many this is a very familiar passage. For many it could be that, like me, uh, they've known this from childhood. They've known about this story, known some of the details about the story. I, I recognize that's the case. But we know also, God, that this is the living word of the living God. And so what is taught here, O oh God, continues to be of great consequence and of great value and great importance. And I pray that you would help me, that I might have the freedom of thought and expression, O oh God, to preach your word tonight. And I pray that you would bless these who are assembled here, that there would be a, the right attention given to the word. And I pray that the uh, pressing issues of the week or tomorrow or the work or family or whatever the uh, issues at hand might be. I pray, oh God, they'd be put in their proper place and that you by your Holy Spirit would arrest our attention and make this a profitable, meaningful time for every life, yes, uh, but also for the life of Heritage Baptist Church. So I pray that you'd get glory to yourself and we thank you for your goodness in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you very much. You may be seated. <clears throat> I love uh, reading through the Gospels. I'll read through the Bible about five times a year, and, and uh, occasionally I'll stop and just go back through the Gospels again because they are so very, very special. And one of the things that is amazing uh, that you notice as you go through the Gospels is the ridiculous uh, accusations that come against Jesus from the religious leadership of the day, mainly the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they make all manner of accusation against him. Uh, for example, they said that he cast out demons by the power of the devil, and Jesus shows them how ridiculous that accusation is. Uh, they accuse him over and over of, of a Sabbath day violations, and of course Jesus has the answer for that. And uh, they say also that he is a wine-bibber and a glutton. That's what they said of the holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, Son of God. That's what they said of Jesus. Now in all of that, there is one accusation they made that they got right because they made this accusation against him that he is a friend of sinners and a friend of publicans and sinners and that he sits down to eat and to drink with them. And so their, their vicious attack upon him was that he was a friend of sinners. And I want to say, you got that right. And here's a sinner right here that is thankful for the fact that he not only was, but that he is the friend of sinners. That is the one thing that they got right. Because, let's not forget, 
the Apostle Paul put it this way. He said, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I like to remind people Jesus did not come to create the Christmas season. Now, I know that blows a lot of people away right there, but he did not. He did not come to create something to do in the spring, like hunt Easter bunny eggs and that kind of thing. Jesus came for this reason, to save sinners. That's why he came. This is a faithful saying, Paul said, the Holy Ghost-inspired apostle. This is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And in our account, Jesus is talking to one, a sinner. Now, this trip, there's a whole lot of details that we could give about it. Uh, I'm, I'm not much into short little sermons anyway, and so if I go into a lot of the details of the background here, we could spend a lot of time on that. I'm allowing that there's enough familiarity that a good many of you understand what was taking place here when it was said that Jesus must needs go through Samaria. Uh, when he said he must needs go through Samaria, he is making reference to the fact that this is the purpose of my Father. Let's not forget he came to do the Father's will, and He only did the Father's will. All the words that He spoke were from the Father, and all the works that He did were the works that His Father had for Him to do. So when He says, the, the Scripture says that He must needs go through Samaria, this is because of the appointment that He had according to the purposes and will of His Father. And so He goes through this very unusual route uh, through Samaria, that the Jews, when they would travel north to Galilee, would purposely go out of their way and avoid because they wanted nothing to do with these half-breeds, uh, the Samaritans. Half-Jew, half-Samarian, uh, or uh, I should say Assyrian, half-Jew, half-Syrian, a mixed breed, and a, a, a group that to the Jews was detestable. And the Samaritans hated the Jews as badly as the Jews hated the Samaritans. And so to avoid the conflict and to avoid a defilement on the part of some of the hyper-religious uh, Jews, they would avoid the Samaritans completely. But Jesus, the Bible says, must needs go through Samaria uh, according to the Father's will. Well, you can see that he comes near this town by the name of Sychar. You can look it up on a good Bible map and see it's not that far up the road from Jerusalem and uh, into Samaria. And so they go to this place and there is a well and it's about the noon hour. And so we understand that the disciples had gone into the town that they might purchase food, that they might have nourishment, and that Jesus remains at the well. And the Bible says that he is weary. He is weary from the journey, is weary from the travel, and there he sits upon the well when the woman of Samaria finds her way there and one of the most, uh, what shall I say, one of the most revered uh, conversations, uh, discourses takes place between Jesus and this very suspicious and questionable woman of Samaria. They have a discussion, a discourse. Now, a couple of things I want to point out before we get right into it, and that is that the subject at hand is thirst. That's what they are talking about. Uh, Jesus and the woman at the well had one thing in common. They both knew what it was to be thirsty for water. The woman at the well came to draw the water. 
for the normal uses of their household and the way they would live and carry on. Drinking water, washing water, cooking water, such as that. Just the normal use of water. Jesus thirsted because of the heat of the day, because of the journey, because of the travel. And Jesus said, give me to drink. But you and I know, don't we, that before he ever opened his mouth, he was already thinking beyond H2O. Come on, we're aware of that. We know, we know what Jesus is doing. He knew who he was talking to. I love it in John chapter 2 where it says that Jesus does not need that any should testify to him of man because he knows all men and he knows what is in them. And so when this woman at the well came, Jesus knew exactly who she was and she knew where, he knew where she was uh, spiritually and he knew all about her. Jesus did. That becomes very evident. And so Jesus uh, talks to her about the thirst and says, give me to drink. Now, <clears throat> In the account, we notice that the woman, obviously, was focused upon the physical water. We understand that. And we understand as clearly that Jesus was not focused upon the physical, but Jesus was focused upon the spiritual. That's what he was thinking about. The woman that heard him say, if you'd ask of me, I would give you water to drink that you don't know of, and that if you drank it, you'd never thirst again. She knew nothing about that. I said she, she knew nothing about it. As a matter of fact, if you kind of evaluate what we do know of her life, and that's not a great deal of detail, but what we do know of her life is this, that uh, she lived the kind of life that would disappoint her over and over again. Why do I say that? Because she understood religion, she says, well, now, the Samaritans believe this, that you worship here and this way, and the Jews say this. So she understood about religion, but religion had done nothing for her. It left her empty, it left her dry, it left her thirsty. And neither did her lifestyle satisfy her. Here is a woman that has had five husbands and that is now living with a man that is not her husband, and come on, you don't have to be really intelligent to read between the lines and say these relationships have been one dead-end road after another, one bad experience after another, one failure after another. Jesus did not refer to her as a widow, but as a woman that has been used by men and as a woman that has allowed herself to be used by men. And so Jesus is understanding where she is, that everything that she thought might bring satisfaction, like the physical realm, it left her dry and thirsty. And everything that she might uh, find satisfaction in the, the way of relationships, it was one failure, it was like a mirage out in the desert. There's really nothing there to satisfy the life and satisfy the soul. That's exactly where she was. And Jesus, knew it, and he approaches the woman. Now, one more little item here before we go any farther, and that is this, that the text implies that there are two sources for water. Two sources for water. Now, understand, we're not talking about the physical water or H2O anymore. Jesus has already moved on from that, and he is talking about the kind of water that will satisfy her forever. 
that's what he's talking about. So he is shifting, he has taken the focus off of the physical and he is now focusing clearly upon the spiritual. And what we understand here is Jesus is going to teach and show that there are two sources for what people seek for satisfaction, the physical and the spiritual. G. Campbell Morgan points it out that there are two sources from which men may drink and attempt to find the satisfaction in life. And here's the way he points it out. Uh, G. Campbell Morgan, you've probably heard of him. Many Bible students have read uh, somewhere sooner or later from the old preacher from England, G. Campbell Morgan. And he said, you may drink from wells. You, 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 you may attempt to drink from wells. The wells of life. Now, I called your attention to Jeremiah chapter 2 because it sheds a little more light on it because it said uh, they had forsaken God, the fountain of living water, and they had turned to cisterns that were man-made cisterns that are broken. That's what it says. And so the same idea is in play here when Jesus is talking to this woman and implying that she has endeavored to drink or to find satisfaction over and over again, and it has failed every time, and it's because that she is drinking of man-made wells. Now, just to add a little more clarity to this, why don't we talk about Solomon for just a second? Now, somebody said, how did we get from here to Jeremiah and now to uh, Ecclesiastes and talk about Solomon? Well, just hang on, because there is a thread of connection here. Jesus referred to himself as the fountain of living water. Uh, and if you don't drink at the fountain of living water, then you're going to drink from man-made cisterns that are broken and can hold no water. And now he's talking to this woman at the well, and we have a great example of someone else that tried to find satisfaction uh, apart from God, and that would have been Solomon. Now, if you've read the book of Ecclesiastes lately, you know that Solomon, the great king, the one that led Israel to the highest glory that they could have known to the greatest nation on the earth, until uh, all the people of the world were coming uh, so that they might see the glory of God in the city of Jerusalem and the wisdom of this man that was a king by the name of Solomon. Then the Bible says that Solomon went out to see what life was like under the sun. Now, I'm not giving word for word quotes here, but you study the book of Ecclesiastes, and this is what happens. And so Solomon is going to go out and say, I'm going to see, is there satisfaction? Might I be satisfied under the sun? In other words, living this life as men live this life. And all he had known was God and fellowship with God, communion with God, blessings with God, the favor of God. He was raised up that way and thank God for the kind of man that Solomon had been. But something came in his life where he said, I am going to see what life is like under the sun. So he went to drink at man-made wells. He went to drink at the well of education. And he studied and he learned. He could talk intelligently about almost anything imaginable that God had done in the work of creation from the animal kingdom to the trees of the forest to the flowers and on and on it goes. Solomon could talk intelligently. Come on, you and I have talked to people that thought they knew everything, but Solomon just about did. And he had this wide, broad understanding. But when he had finished with his study, or in the midst of it, he finally said, it's vanity. 
That's what it is. All of the learning that I have accumulated, all of the study that I've done, books can be a weariness, he said. And all of it, all of it has left him with this emptiness that he calls vanity and vexation of spirit. But he didn't quit because there's another man made well that he thought he might drink from. And he drank at the well of material prosperity and wealth. Oh, yes, he did. Uh, you ought to go read about what it took to sustain Solomon and his household for one day. I mean, it's amazing. And so this man lived at a very luxurious level. And not only was he very wise, not only had his father done well in taking care of money so that they could build the house of God, so they had a great store of wealth to begin with, but when the kingdom was raised and elevated to the glory of God, people started coming from all over the world, and they were bringing gold of Ophir. They were bringing the best gold from the best sources in the world, and they brought him jewels and treasures, excuse me, and the wealth of Solomon just exploded. It exploded to where there wasn't anything that he wanted that he couldn't have. Solomon got to the place where he couldn't say about anything. I can't afford that. I can't afford that. He, he, that was not a part of his vocabulary. He could afford anything. But when he got it all and had this massive accumulation of wealth, you know what he did? He began to worry, what's going to happen to this when I die? Is it going to fall into the hands of some fool that's going to blow it or in the hands of somebody else? And finally, God made it clear to him, it's nothing none of your business. When you're gone, you're gone. You're leaving it. And when Solomon looked at all of his wealth and all the power that came with it and all the influence that came with it, all the treasures and the jewels and all the things and the stuff that he had, here is his response to that. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. He drank it that well, couldn't satisfy him. All the money in the world could not satisfy the man. So he tried something else. He tried the route of hilarity, entertainment, and made sure that he could, I mean, he could afford the best entertainers there were, you know. And so he went that route. And he was going to have hilarity and laughter. He was going to hire people to make him laugh and lift this burden of emptiness that he was carrying around that left him empty in the, in the book learning and left him empty in terms of, of material possessions. I hope every young man and every young woman as well as every age group here will pay attention to this, that he went and said, I am going to find satisfaction somewhere. And he went to Las Vegas so to speak, to be entertained. No, come on, this is a reality right before our eyes. People are going everywhere under the sun and bragging about, I've been here, I've been there. Well, if it was so satisfying, why do you need to go somewhere else? You know, I, I don't understand that. I've been to Oklahoma, that's good enough for me. So anyway, I don't think like a lot of people, I guess, but I'm just saying, uh, he's gonna try this. So he's got laughter, he's got hilarity, he's got comedians, he's got gestures, uh, jesters that are before him. He's got people that can make him laugh. And I can just see Solomon walking away like people do from places of entertainment every day across the United States of America, yea, around the world, when they have been entertained to the hilt, they walk away and they're as empty as they were before they heard all the entertainment. They are. How do you know that? Because Solomon said it's vanity and vexation of spirit. It doesn't bring anything lasting it doesn't, hey, it doesn't fill anything in the soul of a man. It doesn't fill anything there. It has no substance to it. So he tried physical pleasure. 
sexual physical pleasure. 700 wives, 300 concubines. And I'm thinking, wisdom, a thousand wives. Uh, uh, there's a disconnect here somewhere, don't you think? I did the math on it. That's 999 wives more than a man is supposed to have. You're impressed with that, aren't you? Yeah. 900, and he had 1,000 wives, 700 wives, 300 sub-wives, concubines, however you want to look at it. They belonged to him, and they were his. And Solomon said, I never saw a time that they were happy. Now, read the whole book of Ecclesiastes and study it out. Study it out for yourself. And you know what? He couldn't make them happy. They couldn't make him happy. And when he looked at it all, you know what Solomon said? When he considered the learning, when he considered the wealth and the power, when he considered the laughter and the hilarity, look at me just a second, when he considered the, uh, what was afforded him by having 1,000 women in his life, you know what Solomon said? So I hated life. That's what he said about it. He drank from all of those wells and was still found empty. Those are the human wells that are out there. I remember uh, the call of God on my life when I was 16 years of age. And I, I know I got called to preach at that particular time. And then I had uh, going into my senior year of high school, I met this lady over here and she was a year behind me. And, and then I decided, no, I'm not going to go off to Bible college this year. I'm going to wait till she's out of high school and uh, keep our relationship going. And then we'll go off to Bible college together. Well, in the process of that, getting out from under the will of God, I started getting myself all messed up. I mean, just messed up. You know what I was trying to do? I was trying to find something somewhere. And I'm not going to stand here and brag about or talk about some of the exploits I had and some of the things that I did. I'm ashamed of them. I wish they'd have never been a part of my life. I wish they were never a part of my memory. But I found out firsthand, like anybody that goes down the road of disobeying God or running from God, finds out there's nowhere to run. There's nowhere to go. You can drink from here and you can drink from there. And you can try this and you can try that. But when you get away from God and the will of God and His, and, and, uh, His authority in your life, I'm just going to tell you, you'll come to the same place that Solomon came to. So I hated life. How could you say that in the kind of palace you have? How could you say that with the bank accounts you have? How could you say that with all you have at your disposal? How could you say that with the knowledge you have? How could you say that with the harem of ladies that you have? How could you say that with all the possessions and the wealth and the knowledge and the learning and the opportunities for happiness and hilarity? How could you say that? He said, I found out that under the sun, living apart from under the authority of God, but living life secularly, Apart from God's authority and Jesus' lordship, apart from that, you're going to drink from this cistern and that cistern and this cistern and that cistern, and they are all broken, and they are not only unable to satisfy, they have the ability to utterly destroy a person. That's right. That's right. I love to meet young people. I met some of the young men and ladies over here this morning. Enjoy talking to them. Oh, sometimes I wish I could take some of the young people like I saw at the meeting this past week and just pry their mouth open and force it down them. Don't you ever run from God. 
Don't you ever run from his will. Don't you fight against God. You're not big enough to fight against God. All the men in this room are big enough to fight against God. There's not anybody anywhere big enough to fight against the will of God. And why don't you save yourself a lot of difficult, empty, vain experiences and come under the authority of God and quit looking to drink here and quit looking to drink there and quit looking to drink over here at another place. There's nothing apart from God's will. There's nothing but broken cisterns. Broken cisterns. Yep. Farm I was raised on, we mentioned this morning, I think we didn't have no water in the house and we'd pump out of a cistern between the house and the wash house. <laughs> and uh, so I was the fifth out of six kids. My brothers were eight and ten, still are eight and ten years older than me. And so I can remember I was the one that was assigned to get a bucket of water, you know. So he did a bucket of water for drink, had a little dipper in there. You want a drink of water, you go in, everybody pick up the same dipper and drink out of it. And somebody said, gross, that's terrible. So we didn't think anything about it. That's just the way we lived. And so, yeah. And then I can remember that cistern there. Uh, I'd pump water for my mom for wash clothes and all of that every Monday, about six, seven tubs of water and two washing machines and all of that. And uh, yeah, that, that old cistern. So, well, we had to clean it twice a year. And the first time I remember going down there, uh, it was my turn. You know, I, my brothers were off doing other stuff and I was old enough now to do this job. My mom and one of my sisters let me down in there. If my sisters had the way, uh, their way, I, they'd have left me down there. But anyway, my mom was involved, fortunately. So anyway, I got out of there. But I remember coming out of there and I said to my mom, Mom, there are snake skins in there. There are dead mice in there. There are dead hop toads in there in the bottom of that thing that I just cleaned out. This thing is filthy. My mom says, yeah, well, we got it clean now. And I said, well, this, it, how can this be that we're drinking this water and all that stuff is down there? Well, of a cistern, you know, you have this deal, it's got all these little cups on it. And so it might go till there's this much water standing that the buckets never reach and never pick up. And I asked my mom, I said, why aren't we sick? Where does this water come from? It comes off of rainwater on the house. That creates another issue. When you think about the rainwater that's coming off the house where all manner of fowl, both unclean and clean, have been on that house doing what they do on the roof of a house and that water's running down there in that cistern and we're drinking that water and using that water. And I thought about that a lot of times, and there are a lot of people I happen to understand or learn, there are a lot of people in rural areas that had real health issues because of that, and I may have been one of them that had some in my younger years. It might have built up immunities that's kept me alive this long now. I don't even know. But I'm just saying, it was not good. And as a broken cistern, you get that? There's a vast difference in a cistern and a spring. I said, there's a vast difference in a spring and a fountain of real good water. There's a vast difference between it. You may survive it, you may use it, you may live through it, but it cannot be to you what a spring is. And the other source is what Jesus referred to as a spring of living water in them. And he referred to himself in verse number 10 as the one that was that water. And in verse number 14, he said, Whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water mm, springing up 
a spring, not a cistern, not a, no, not a man-made hole in the ground. Nothing like, not the kind of well, like the wells that could be filled up by the enemies and destroyed. No, not like that. This is a spring. It's a fountain. There are many sources of water out here in terms of cisterns and broken wells. But there's one fountain. And God said he is the fountain of living water. He is the source, fountain, source. He is the source of everything that is good. He is the source of everything that is true. He is the source of everything that is right. He is the source of everything that is pure. He is the source of what can satisfy a man. And that's what Jesus is saying here in our text of this woman at the well. If you drink of the water that I give you, you will find that there will be satisfaction and you will never thirst again like you are thirsty now. You never will. You never will. That's why he said again in John 6, the famous chapter for the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. If you eat of me, you have life. And I am, listen to this, I am the living water you drink of me and you have life, living water. That's why Jesus stood on the great day of the feast in John chapter 7, and he stood there in the midst of people that despised him and hated him, there in Jerusalem on the great day of the feast. And he said, If any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. And the water that I give him shall be a spring of living water, welling up in his soul. <laughs> That's what Jesus said. He is the fountain of living water. Drink it. Drink it. There's anybody here not saved? There is no, listen to me, there are many wells, there's one spring. There are many wells, there's one fountain. His name is Jesus. And he is the one that promises living water. And if you don't drink of him, there is no satisfaction for the soul apart from him. There is no peace with God. How many ways can we say it? There's no peace with God apart from him. There's no assurance about eternity apart from him. There's no assurance of guidance from God in this life apart from him. Drink right there. It's amazing. As Jesus talked to the woman, look at this account. Verse number 15 is such an important verse. Let's read verse 14 again first. Look at this. For whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Look at this. He's got her attention. I said he's got her attention. She knows she's empty. She knows her soul is dry. She knows five relationships with men has left her like the sixth one is leaving her empty. Ten more like it wouldn't produce anything different. She knows that. The woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Oh, I wish we could have been there to hear the tone, the humility of this lady, the, the change that is already beginning to take place in her heart as she appeals to him and says, give me this water 
Well, if you call upon him, he's going to hear you and he's going to answer you. And there would be many people that say, so Jesus gave her the water and she drank. But there's a point of business that needs to be taken care of before she can have the fountain of living water, isn't there? Jesus said to her, knowing full well her status, go get your husband. The shock that must have been to her. It was so shocking, she later said, you must be a prophet. I perceive you're a prophet. How could you know this otherwise? He said, go get your husband. I have no husband. You said that right. You've had five. The man you're with now is not your husband. You know what Jesus is doing? He is showing in this account to everyone that ever hopes to drink of the fountain of living water that you do not bypass the sin issue and drink of the living water. So everybody listen to this. There is a lot of, quote, gospel being preached that's another gospel in the sense that there is no mention of sin, no mention of repentance, no mention of humility and contrition before God, no mention of it whatsoever. Raise your hand. Okay, this one's saved. You, you raise their hand. They're saved, they're saved, and they're saved, and no evidence whatsoever that there's any dealing with sin. I'm going to tell you right now, friend, that is a false gospel. It is not of God. And Jesus, listen to this, love personified, talking to a woman that he passed through Samaria so he could talk to her at the dismay of no doubt his disciples and many others. Why would you pass through Samaria? He loved her and he cared for her, but he would not ignore the issue of sin. And he said to her, go get your husband, which is the same as saying, we've got to deal with the sin issue. You can't drink of, excuse me, you can't drink of this water and deny sinfulness, your own sinfulness. You can't drink of this water and ignore dealing with known sin. You cannot. So because she lived with all those men, she's a sinner. Her, uh, huh? Well, now, hold on just a second. Actually, uh, living with these men and having this immoral relationship with the man that she is now with, this isn't what made her a sinner. It revealed that she's a sinner. And so, hold on just a second. If you went back, I, I don't want to lose you here, so stay with me, please. If you went back to the preaching of John the Baptist, he's out there preaching, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the people came and said to him, Under conviction that the need of repentance, what shall we do? And you know what John the Baptist did? He said, you're so self-consumed. You don't care about anybody but yourself. Learn to care for other people. Oh, is that all you got to do to be saved? Start caring for other people? No, excuse me just a second. He identified how they were manifesting their sinfulness and said, you can't ignore your sinfulness and come to God under his authority. The kingdom of heaven requires that he is king. Somebody help me, please. And he has authority. And you can't deny sinfulness. And so while John the Baptist is preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then the Bible says the publicans came and they were under conviction and they said, what shall we do? You can read this yourself in Luke 4. And, and they said, what shall we do? And he said, quit robbing the people. Quit gouging them with your taxation. 
Quit being greedy and putting that money in your pocket, making their life more miserable and your life more luxurious. Quit doing that. Well, it wasn't that sin that would send them to hell, but that's how their sinfulness was best revealed. Does everybody listen to this? That's exactly what he's doing. And, and, and even as Jesus preached there, uh, uh, I'm sorry, John the Baptist preached and said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is in it. There were Roman soldiers there. Come on, they're concerned about all this massive crowd that is coming. And the people that are there, is there going to be some kind of an uprising, a rebellion against Rome? And the Roman soldiers are there. But when John the Baptist got up and he preached and he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is in it, even the Roman soldiers got under conviction and said to John the Baptist, what shall we do? What would our repentance look like? And he said, you're taking advantage of people. You're abusing people. You're using these very, very oppressed people for your own personal gain. You're robbing their houses and you're making their life more miserable. Stop it. Well, those actions isn't what would send them to hell, but it's how their sinfulness was made known. And so if you, um, if you're talking to somebody that is addicted to alcohol, he is a drunkard and he's addicted to alcohol and you want to win him to Jesus, what are you going to talk to him about? The time he didn't pay for a 10 cent piece of candy when he was a boy, is that what you're going to talk to him about? Or are you going to talk about the misery that's being brought not only in his life to everybody around him and the danger that he is to society because he won't Listen to this. He won't get right about his drunkenness. Well, you can tell you're not up on things. Everybody knows that's a sickness. It's a disease. Yeah, well, you didn't find that reading the Bible. Don't make me. I'll sit down here and amen myself. You didn't find that reading the Bible, friend. So what would you talk to him about? The need of repentance. I said you'd talk to him about the need of repentance in the way that is most manifest. And you know what there are many people doing? Walking aisles saying, I want to believe in Jesus. I believe in Jesus. Nobody talks to them about sin. I'm not saying it happens here. I'm not saying nobody is doing it. I'm just saying it's way too widespread that nobody's talking about sin. Nobody's talking about repentance. Nobody's talking about the fact that if you're going to drink of this living water, then you go get your husband which is simply saying to you and to me, you go deal with the sin that you know is standing between you and the righteous and holy God. You got to confess it. You got to repent in your heart of it toward God. And then you have faith in Jesus Christ and drink of that living water. Amen. That's right. Well, I think I'm saved. You want to leave this life thinking, hoping, maybe, perhaps? Well, I don't know that I ever did anything like, uh, you know, I, I really, I got saved. Look, I got saved when I was six years old. I never cussed. I didn't even know a cuss word. Worst thing I can remember doing is hitting one of my sisters or both of them. And that was self-defense. You know, so I didn't have this big rap sheet of awful sin. But I'm just telling you, when, I, when God dealt with my heart about the matter of hell and about sin, I knew that I was a sinner before God. I couldn't list a whole list of sins that would meet people say, oh, you're kidding, that kid. But I knew I was a sinner before God. You don't come to Jesus and drink and ignore the issue of sin. You do not. Listen to me, saints. And when you've drunk of that living water, and all of a sudden, like Solomon, you put, so to speak, you put it aside and go to live life under the sun, live life apart from his authority, 
do your own thing, spread your wings a little bit, do some things that that legalistic church is against and make you feel guilty about. Let me just tell you something. When you found your life wandering from God, and you can be in the church chair week after week after week and be far from God. I said, you can be in that church chair in your place week after week and be far from God. And if you want that refreshing, if you want that peace, if you want that joy that you once knew, you can have it again, but not without dealing with your sin. That's why we ought to still give invitations. That's why I wish we still had mourners' benches. That's why I wish we didn't live in a culture that's totally averse to making any kind of a public decision. That's why it'd be great again if the tears of saints getting right with God was watering the floor again, as in days gone by. Oh, you're just living in the past. I don't want to repeat the past for the sake of the past, but if there was brokenness over sin then, there ought to be brokenness over sin now. I said, if there was brokenness over sin in the old days of revival, then I wonder how we think we're going to have some kind of a magnificent revival when nobody is broken about nothing. And I know that's bad grammar, but I did it anyway. Amen. Does everybody listen to this? Amen. And Jesus is making it very clear. You want to drink of me? You want to know what living water is in you? You want to know my peace within you? You want to know my refreshing in your life? I'm talking to those that are not saved. If you, listen, if you've tried this and you've tried that, you're on a dead-end road right now without Jesus Christ. You've got to come before God and, and confess your self-sufficiency, confess your greed, whatever it is that's keeping you from humbling yourself before God. You've got to confess it and call upon Jesus. You don't bypass sin and drink of the fountain of living water. You don't. You don't. And if, and if you're, you're a person, I was telling the pastor, we went through a situation in our family, sort of a family crisis two years ago. And uh, the person involved, I'm not going to go into details about it, but the person involved got broken and, I mean, crushed and humbled before God and, and you know, acknowledging any revival. But in my closeness to the situation and the heart that I had for it, I got my own heart broken and didn't even realize I needed the revival as well as the person I was dealing with. I needed it. It's, it broke my heart. I mean, it changed me to, to this very day. That's been two years ago, this very month. Two years ago, this month, and my life is not the same as it was before. No. And you know what I had to do? I had to admit I was caught up. I was caught up in busyness. No, I, I, I wasn't out stealing or doing stupid, wicked stuff like that. I just wasn't. Listen, I just wasn't, my heart wasn't close to God like it ought to be. It's just too much of activity and going and doing and busy and preaching here and traveling here, and going there and being in this meeting and being in another meeting and being in another meeting. You can go through all the motions as a preacher and your heart be far from God. And when you want things to be right, it doesn't matter if it's a person like I was dealing with who had a serious issue to deal with before God or it doesn't matter if it's that or it's that heart that's drifted maybe even little by little, you got to come back to God. And you don't come back and drink at that fountain of living water and get the refreshing that he has for us and bypass your sin. You don't do it. You don't do it. And if you know there's something standing between you and God right now, on this Sunday night of the revival meeting, 
I implore you. I am, I'm not accusing anybody. I'm not ashamed to accuse anybody of you need this and you need that. I don't know. I'm just knowing how it can be. If you want his closeness, if you want him like a spring of, like rivers of living water flowing out of your belly, that's the way he described it in John 7. I misquoted that a while ago. It'd be like rivers of living water, like, man, my life has purpose, it has meaning, it's, it's refreshing. The old body gets physically weary and physically tired and such as that, but the soul is refreshed and charged. And you get in the place where that refreshing is not there, and you know that between you and God, it's not like it used to be. Don't leave that alone. Don't be too proud to deal with what's standing between you and that kind of closeness with God that you know you're supposed to have. Father, you know who's in this room tonight. I want to pray first right now for any in this room that are not sure of their salvation or, in fact, know that they are not saved. I want to pray for them. So while our heads are bowed, I'm going to ask, if you're struggling with whether you're saved or not, or you know you're not, would you just raise your hand so I can pray for you? I'm not going to come back and embarrass you. I have no tricks up my sleeve. I'm not going to. There, there are no tricks involved. I see your hand. God bless you, honey. God bless you. Anybody else? Just raise your hand and say, please pray for me. I'm not sure I'm saved. I do not know that I have eternal life. Please pray for me, or I know that I don't. Please pray for me. It's just between you and me and God. Anybody else? Anybody in this room now, Father, that's saved? that knows you, they are in fact your child. But through the process of time, if this could happen to Solomon, it can certainly happen to people like us. We just kind of get our eyes elsewhere and our focus is off. And we think maybe there'd be more fulfillment going this way or that way and not so much committed and dedicated, concerned about obedience to the Word and the working of the Holy Spirit. Well, God, is there anybody in this room today in whom your Holy Spirit is now working and saying, you're not where we once were. You're not drawing closer and drinking deeper. You're drifting farther from the fountain of living water.